0: In her 1983 book, Still Living, Yeti, Sasquatch, and the Neanderthal Enigma, Dr. Myra Shackley writes, My first line of approach was to show examples of Neanderthal tools to the people and ask whether they had ever seen anything like them in the area. Inevitably, they had and could show me the precise location. Secondly, I asked whether they themselves knew anything about the tools, and here I obtained the same answer from a number of widely separated groups. All agreed that the tools had been used by people, quote, who used to live in the area before us and who now live in the mountains, end quote. The name given to these people never varied. The locals called them either the people of Tude, or, when asked to elaborate, gave the name Almas, or one of its local variations. When the pivotal film Jurassic Park was released in 1993, the world got to witness something remarkable on screen. The fictional Dr. Grant's entire life's work literally coming to life after 65 million years of extinction. We see his sense of surprise, wonderment, and utter excitement in realizing a dream come true. All the years of school, endless writing and publishing papers, tireless and dirty field work, the lectures, the attacks from jealous colleagues, the whole of his career of digging up bones of dead giants long since gone, and there they were before his very eyes. Every aspiring young paleontologist or archaeologist fantasizes of such things to enter that stone world when it was alive and in vivid color, full of the sights and sounds of the animals or people of the ancient world to go back in time and personally witness the artifacts of today. Imagine a similar scenario, only not merely cinematic, but right here in the real world. What if you could travel to an actual place in a faraway corner of the planet where strange creatures once roamed, but seemingly never left? What if this was a distant land where science, myth, and folklore intersect and fable becomes fact? Specifically, What if you had spent your entire life studying human hominids, like Homo erectus and Neanderthals, taught their morphology to scores of students for decades, and built a career from reconstructing their bones into a viable picture of their past, only to learn that such a place was real? If you knew that a relic population of one of these hominids still lived there, would you not jump at the opportunity and the chance to visit this locale in person? To see the culmination of your work come to life and in the flesh? You would think... Such a place does exist. It is real, and so are these creatures if the stories are to be believed. But to the contrary, the mainstream scientists who ordinarily would be fascinated to witness it scarcely show any interest at all. Not in this subject. The place I'm referring to stretches in a relatively narrow band of mountain chains from the Black Sea to Siberia. It skirts the Himalayas and touches the Gobi Desert well to the Baikal Steppes. Each of the mountainous regions contain their own similar yet distinct cultures, and each of these peoples have their own centuries-old myths and legends of a man-like hairy beast existing within their lands. Moreover, each of these groups has had countless personal encounters reported amongst them and passed down through the local lore for centuries. They're seeing them. These regions all have the requisite archaeological history and lineage of sites that represent the very hominids that are being encountered in reality, and most of them have the actual fossils to ensure this. The fossil record, bolstered by the archaeological sites they occupied, represent the ancient relatives of our past, and they are being encountered still alive in the present. An entire litany of folklore has sprung up to support this mythos created around these encounters and are woven into the landscape and natural world. Their existence was recognized by regional naturalists as part of their local flora and fauna centuries ago, and this is well documented. Luckily, a very small cadre of intrepid scientists, investigators, were willing to stick their necks out before the world and follow their noses. Instead of outright dismissal for fear of ridicule from the public and their peers, they chose to follow the evidence and clues that pointed out that something was afoot and warranted further investigation. With language and geopolitical barriers notwithstanding, their findings are finally coming to light. In the American judicial system, to score a guilty verdict and earn a conviction in a criminal trial, the burden of proof must reach beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant committed the act. For a mere indictment, however, a much lower burden of proof is all that is needed for a criminal charge. The grand jury only needs probable cause that a crime was committed to indict the individual. I'm Paul Bowman of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. In this discussion, I'll be making the case that probable cause exists to warrant further investigation that an extraordinary phenomenon is occurring, one of potential paradigm-changing implications to anthropology and the world at large. Only a type specimen, a dead body, will meet the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt for a scientific slam dunk. Unlike the North American Wood Ape, this seems highly unrealistic likely unattainable and with different ethical connotations, and I'm not the case that I'm making. I am calling for an intellectual gut check of academia from several fields, and that a case can be made that this story not only warrants a look, but there should be a scientific imperative to do so. The consequences of not investigating it would be almost criminal. Second, I intend to divorce this specific phenomenon from other well-known mystery ape men such as Bigfoot or the Yeti once and for all. For far too long, those who fancy cryptozoology and Fordian subjects have wantonly and perhaps ignorantly conflated all of the hairy bipeds that fuel pop culture, tropes of scary monsters, or to sell beef jerky and car insurance. Although there are some minor similarities, these are not at all the same creature. The commingling of these entities amongst those who investigate them is a mistake and has done both a disservice. Both are incredibly compelling, but they are on different ends of the spectrum for paleoanthropology and would imply different things. This needs clarification and stratification that is clad in the facts, not a cavalier lumping together for convenience sake. This is the story of the Almas, the Almasti, roughly translated as the Wild Man. This is the official podcast of the NAWAC. This is Apes Among Us.
1: Happy New Year. Welcome to this episode of Apes Among Us. I'm Matt Pruitt,
2: and I'm joined here by my co-host, Mr. Daryl Collier. How are you doing there, Daryl? Good morning, Matthew. I'm doing well here in the, uh, the hidden studio deep in the Washita Mountains.
1: Excellent. We're also joined today by professional archaeologist and NAWAC Board of Directors member, Mr. Paul Bowman, who you all might remember from the episode Exploring Alternative Paths to Discovery. How are you doing there this morning, Paul? I'm doing great. How are you, gents? Very good. Swell, swell. <laughs> Well, we certainly hope that everyone's having a wonderful new year thus far, and, and welcome again to this episode, which is going to be another installment of this Planet of the Mystery Ape series, where we explore various mysterious hominoids that are reported in different parts of the world. If you recall from the first installment of this series, I interviewed Gareth Patterson, who talked about his research with lions and specifically with elephants in South Africa. And in the introduction to that episode, I referenced Ivan T. Sanderson's seminal book, abominable snowman legend come to life. And in that fantastic book, which was published in 1961, Sanderson sort of makes the case that there are these four different types or categories of these mysterious apes around the world that he calls the proto-pygmies, you know, the very small type, uh, like the orang pindek, the ibugogo, etc cetera. The neo-giants, which would be the large wood ape Sasquatch types, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the Yaren, the Yowie. The sub-hominids, which are the more ape-like quadrupedal uh, larger types, variations of the Yeti in certain parts of Asia, and then finally what he called the subhumans, which are more man-like forms, and that's what we're going to be discussing today. Paul here is is embarked on a project to collate and aggregate a tremendous amount of information about these mystery apes, and so we're here to discuss that today. And so, Paul, maybe for the listeners who might not be familiar with this certain category, we could talk about the specific geography, like where in the world are these things found? Essentially,
0: most of Asia. Uh, But uh, really, you could start on the east shore of the Black Sea, starting with the Caucasus mountain range and go east. Uh, And there's, uh, if you were to look at a globe, there's a series of large mountain chains uh, the Hindukush, the Pamirs, the Caucasus, and then the Altai. Uh, and, and then a, a small portion of the Ural Mountains in, in Siberia. But essentially, there's this sort of a band across Asia, and that's where all of these sightings take place.
2: Well, I would expect that many of our, our listeners are like me, uh, Paul. They don't really know what these things are. Not sh- uh, We assume that they're one and the same with the wood ape, the Sasquatch. Right. And that's that's the problem. As I see it, these things have been this this uh,
0: particular phenomenon has been conflated uh, with the Sasquatch phenomenon. And they're not the same thing. Um, they have they have similarities, but they uh, apart from being bipedal, hairy, man like things, that's about that's about where uh, the extent of, of the similarities and where uh, this particular uh, phenomenon
2: sort of branches out on its own. Okay. So you're not only asking people to accept that there is this unknown species to which we refer as the Sasquatch or the wood Abe, you're also expecting us to accept that there's another hominoid species that is unknown that is different from the Sasquatch. 100%. 100%.
0: And I'm, I'm I'm going to make the case that uh, at the very least it's it's worthy of investigation and further attention. I think it's it's unfortunate that and that's what uh, your point's well taken. Uh, people often refer to uh, the Almas or the Almasti as oh well, it's the Russian Bigfoot or it's the the Asian wild man. It's it's or snowman that that word uh, gets it gets tossed out a lot. And and that's really I think it's very unfortunate because they're not the same thing. Uh, they both have different implications anthropologically speaking. And of course, the wood ape. You know, I think the three of us combined can definitely. We're, we're not we're not believers. We're knowers. We know these things exist but I think what happens is because of the, uh, the region where these, these things are cited, uh, the nature of uh, both geopolitical, uh, uh, and, uh, geographical, it's such a remote area of the world that's largely closed off to Westerners. Um, at least in the Caucasus region. Now, most people just, it's just sort of out of sight, out of mind. And, and then most of the literature, at least as far as when it comes to cryptozoology, most people just sort of lump it in with Bigfoot and I just I think that this this really deserves a second look um, and it, it deserves attention and it stands all on its own as far as uh, a credible
2: uh, and fascinating phenomenon that that should be looked at. I think that's a natural assumption uh, when you're talking about hirsute hominoids that remain undetected it's uh, it seems to me to be sort of a logical assumption that we're only dealing with one. I mean, because one, one, like I said, one is difficult enough to comprehend, and so now we're talking at least a couple, uh, and that's you know that's a very hard pill to swallow for perhaps a lot of people. Well, let's get into it. Um, tell me, what almost and almighty synonymous? They're actually different words, but they they absolutely refer to the same
0: the same creature. The term Almas, that's not a, a plural term, but the Almas is, is strictly Mongolian. And so when you hear the term Almas, that's what it's referring to. It's referring to this phenomenon in, in the, the country of, of uh, outer Mongolia. Um, almasti is, is sort of an amalgam. Uh, I believe it's from a Turkic uh, language. When, when you hear Almas or almosti, they're referring to the same phenomenon, but in just different, different regions of, of
2: the world if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes good sense.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In the same manner that, you know, various – indigenous peoples of North America would have various words, different terms to describe these large ape-like creatures, you know, and even to this day we still sort of engage in that with the different terms between Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Skunk Ape, etc., etc., cetera, et cetera. A wood ape, you know, very often people will ask, what's the difference between a Bigfoot and a Sasquatch and a Skunk Ape and a wood ape? So it, it makes sense that peoples in a geographic area the size of North America would do that, let alone the span of Asia that you're talking about, which is exponentially much larger.
0: Well, and interestingly enough, the phenomenon holds true it has a similar uh the one of the parallels is is exactly that each one of these regions has their own colloquial localized namesake uh, or nickname you know because there's so many you know like you just mentioned you've got skunk ape you've got old, old mossy back and you know very localized uh terminologies to refer to bigfoot but this is the same thing happens with with the Almasti. Because you've got multiple culture groups, similar but but different regions. Uh, some of it's based on religion, but you've got all these different groups of people that all have their own localized um, terms. But generally speaking, almosti is is sort of a it's 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 the most accepted and, and recognized term um, to describe the uh, this animal,
2: or should I say this this hominid? What is the description of this thing? What, how, what what's it look like? What is it? Well, it's largely described as
0: short. Um, in contrast to to the wood ape, it's it's never it's never uh, usually five two to five seven is sort of the average height. Uh, never any any taller than six foot. Very very few reported sightings of, of a creature that's six foot. Completely covered in hair, usually uh, reddish brown, uh, or sometimes camel colored. It has no hair on his hands or or face uh, or feet, Uh, and also its its butt, its rear end is is bare. It it the hair tends to be more sparse on the chest and and stomach um, and the face. Um, It's it's usually described as long or free flowing, uh, particularly on the on the the back of the head and the hips. Uh, Real shaggy, matted, unkempt, dirty. Uh, very smelly, and uh, the, fa- the, the skin is, is described as, as black uh, or like a dark gray, um, similar to like the belly of a, of a camel uh, or a camel skin. It's got a flat, very flat, wide nose, large, um, deep-set eyes, um, usually described as black, uh, although in the Caucasus region, they're, they're often described as red. But one of the most uh, striking features of this, this uh, creature is very, very heavily pronounced brow ridge uh, or a superorbital torus, if you're into the anthropological terms. Very massive jaw, uh, but a receding uh, or no chin at all. Uh, also, very large teeth, similar teeth to humans, um, but larger.
2: And then a sloping uh, or flat, a flat head and a sloping forehead. There, there are a few descriptors there that sort of don't fit Homo Neanderthalensis, but it sounds like to me, generally, that you're describing Homo Neanderthalensis. All of the reconstructions, um, you know, you can go to a,
0: a number of natural history museums across the, the, the country, or the world for that matter, and when they do three-dimensional reconstructions of Neanderthals, this is exactly what these people are reporting you know and in in contrast with wood apes it doesn't have uh it doesn't appear to have a sagittal crest uh, or a pointed shaped head um it's not you know overly large it's 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 manlike it's it's almost always described as a wild man a wild hairy man but not a man a very strange looking ugly man <laughs> particularly the the brow ridge and the jaw and then they're also described as being somewhat uh, bow legged or, or maybe stooped over, uh, also very fast, uh, very agile, uh, fast climbers and, and runners. Multiple reports of them bounding like from boulder to boulder. They're often seen in pairs, very broad shouldered, broad, very massive barrel chest,
2: very, very muscular. Yeah, that sounds like a Neanderthal. I mean, that's what that sounds like five feet tall, five and a half feet tall, exactly. And and again,
0: it's 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 when when you when you get familiar with the early uh, human hominids that's makes them different and unique from from modern homo sapiens this is essentially what these these folks are seeing uh and everything that they've described i mean even down to the like the no chin and that one that that
2: alone is a, is an odd one um because that's that's very distinctly um neanderthal okay so where i'm going to go with that then based on on what we know about neanderthals is that logically we should have received reports that these things are engaging in ritualistic behavior that they have that they fashion tools they use tools they may even have adornments they they may even wear clothing do we have reports like that one of the bigger problems um with
0: um the notion that it could be a a uh, a hominid such as Neanderthal, because you're you're right, they do use tools. Um, they do have culture, if you will, and there are a few reports of them carrying uh, sharpened sticks, but by and large, no reports of of being seen using stone tools or carrying stone tools. Uh, they're they're naked. They don't have any clothing. However, there are reports from the Caucasus; they've been seen wearing like a discarded hat. I think it's called a kafuts, or it's a, it's a, it's very ubiquitous in the Caucasus region, but it's that kind of a tall, furry looking little hat, almost like a fez hat, you know, and it's, it's a very popular um, clothing item amongst the, uh, the farmers and, and herders that, 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 live there. And there have been reports of, of Al- Al-Masti being seen, car- or wearing one of these things. And it's, it's clearly torn and dirty and almost as if they found it, it was discarded and they picked it up. Um, there's also a few reports of, of them having tatters of old coats or uh, pieces of, of, you know, like a heavy jacket um, that's like strips that have been ripped off that have been sort of tied around their waist or or, um, so they seem to have some level of awareness that this is what people do and that they often maybe mimic that, but mostly no clothing whatsoever, no tools, no language. And that's a problem. Essentially, you're seeing things that there's some trends um, that i like to discuss that these are sort of things that you would expect. Again, the the, the, stone, the lack of stone tools. Uh, now, fire is another interesting. Uh, there there have been uh, a number of reports of them stoking a, a, an abandoned fire, um, but never starting one. They've never been observed actually starting a fire themselves. Uh, but they do they do seem to to understand what fire is and its utility, and they'll they'll stoke a fire that's a campsite that's been abandoned. So that's another another problem. We
2: know that Neanderthals used fire uh, as well as Homo erectus. But Uh, Homo erectus is the uh, supposed the ostensible inventor of fire. Right. That's correct. But they're essentially what uh, my main thesis here is that
0: you've got these regions um, that are very distinct culturally and, and geographically, but they all have the same the same creature that seems to exist there. The Russians actually did a, a pretty interesting thing back in 1958. They formed what they called the Snowman Commission. Of course, we have to remember that the Russians and communism in general nationalizes everything, including science. Um, so on one hand, it's, it's, it's interesting that you have government interest in, in, in such a thing, but then you also have the ineptitude <laughs> and um, the lack of transparency and all of that sharing of data that didn't take place. But you have a, a group of, of investigators not not unlike um, the Sasquatch phenomenon in the 1960s and 70s um, you sort of have this this these founding fathers that that research the Almasti and the Almas and they accrued an incredible amount of I mean uh, Marie Jean Kaufman, who was a Russian uh, doctor, she's sort of the the most stalwart uh, investigator for the Almasty. She had uh, accrued over five hundred detailed interviews and reports from from witnesses that have seen this thing. And likewise, in Mongolia, um, there was a guy that did a, a similar uh, a similar thing, has over three hundred interviews. So. My argument is that you have, um, not unlike um, John Green, you've got sort of this this pantheon of, of eyewitness accounts, and mostly these are from people who are are, are largely uneducated, uh, most likely illiterate. They're simple goat herds or uh, farmers, uh, hunters, um, wood stackers, um, rural people. Who and we're talking in the 1920s and 30s? They were not at all affected by um,
2: clearly social media or pop culture even. And the other aspect of that, Paul, is that they are dis- disparately located. They're in very remote areas that are separated and with with minimal or zero communication between the areas, particularly if we go back in history uh, before the mid – before the late 20th century when much of the world became c- connected. So they, they've identified the same thing, the same phenomenon, the same uh, creature – but yet they had no connection to each other. That's compelling to me. exactly. and the, the, their their descriptions are extremely detailed and
0: very, very consistent. and And that to me is also is also very telling. And so it, it's mainly from from Dr. Kaufman's uh, her reporting, I mean she's got she she did a pretty good job of of sort of teasing out uh, some of these descriptors uh, to include diet. And to say that it's an, it's omnivorous is is sort of an understatement. I mean, I could go through the list of all the things that that it's been seen uh, or reported to have to to eat, uh, but it'd probably be easier to to pick on the things that you wouldn't really expect. One of which is the placenta, and since uh, many of these uh, these culture groups that have witnessed the Almosty, they've uh, most of them live around horses or livestock. And so there's a, a numerous reports of them eating the afterbirth of, of a foal or, or a fawn
2: that's been born. Uh, but they've also been reported eating horse manure. I can understand the placenta because of the nutrients, but I kind of hard pressed with my limited understanding of diet Well, I think most mammals practice coprophagy, correct? I mean, there's there's many, many
1: mammals that retrieve nutrients from waste, whether, you know, waste that they encounter or sometimes, you know, even apes will recycle uh, their own waste in order to gain nutrients that were passed that weren't absorbed through the initial pass-through, which is uh, fairly
0: gross, but I guess it's a part of it.
2: I didn't know that, Matthew. That's a good good, uh, little piece of data there.
0: Also, uh, with the Almasti, particularly, there's a large number of reports of them eating hazelnuts, which in the Caucasus region, that's, that's a, a pretty uh, a ubiquitous tree nut. And also, I thought this was interesting, but they've also been reported to eat earth nuts, which is uh, a type of, they call it earth nuts, but what that is, is a type of fennel. And I didn't remember this, but um, the Albert Osterman uh, account where he was uh, kidnapped by a, a Bigfoot and brought back, you know, to the to the family. <laughs> uh, he made mention of of the female um, Sasquatch digging an earthnut. So again, I'd never heard that term before, but that's that's something that's reported. Uh, also, cow parsnip and grains, just simple uh, wheat and other cultivated grains, just literally picking up handfuls and, and shoving it in their mouth. All of these mountainous regions uh, have are are well stocked with with uh, a large game, particularly ibex, uh, argali sheep, can't wild camel, wild horse, red deer or elk, uh, gazelles, and uh, large ovicaprid species like that. So there's plenty of them to eat, plenty of things for them to to use um, for foodstuffs, and so I think that's interesting. But also they're they're said to inhabit caves uh, or even uh, build small nests, like in, in heavy brush or, or tall grass. There's even one account of, of a tree nest sort of being found, and um, they've also been reported occupying uh, buildings, particularly sheds or or and some uh, in, in, in the Caucasus region. There's an interesting account of, of a, a group of uh, Kazaks that were uh, excommunicated by Stalin. And sent to basically Siberia, and they whole villages were just completely abandoned. And witnesses had come, had sort of backfilled in, and, and had found these these Al-Masti <laughs> occupying these people's residences. And so that's kind of an interesting, yeah, it's sort of interesting. Um, and there's 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 even an account of uh, a birth uh, where one uh, a female almasti was was uh, seen giving birth. And uh, their babies have been seen uh, in other reports, and essentially they're they're hairless; they're they're born naked, like like people are. Um, and at some point, you know, uh, as as infants, they they develop to, to grow this full, you know, thick coat of hair. So I think that's an interesting little little tidbit
2: of information. So, Paul, you're writing. I understand you're writing a book on this subject. What's your What's the thesis of your book? You've sort of given us a little bit of, about what you what the case you're making what, what is your, what is the the focused thesis of your of your case of your presentation? what I'm trying to do is is and
0: and Matt and I have discussed this before in reference to to wood apes, but i'm I'm basically trying to make a case that there is something afoot <laughs> um, that needs to be further investigated, preferably by the scientific community and and it's almost to me. When you, when you look at the evidence, it's academic or intellectual malfeasance to not look into this phenomenon because the implications of what it could be to me are, are, are just too important. But when you make, a, if you look at it, like say from a, a criminal justice perspective, you know, to, get, to earn a conviction in a court of law, you must, uh, it has to, you have to reach the, the, the burden of proof is, is beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, if you wanted to indict somebody in a grand jury, all you need is probable cause. And if you've got probable cause to move forward with an indictment, the, the, the burden of proof is much lower. And my argument is that the burden, that the, the, the actual uh, stack of evidence that, the, that this thing actually exists and, and we need to find it and find out what it is, I think it definitely, there's definitely probable cause. And, and, and also, unlike the, the Sasquatch phenomenon, I kind of look at it as, as, as four legs of a stool, and at the top of that stool is is the actual phenomenon, the, the almasti, And one leg you have folklore. So each of these, um, like you like you mentioned, this these dis- desperate culture groups that that are not not in communication with each other. They're not um, they're in in different parts of the world, and yet they all have these sort of mythic. Themes um, revolving around this phenomenon, similar to to the yeti, a lot of the, the early Tibetan Buddhism textbooks uh, and medical guides they list this as, as a known animal or a known creature in in their sort of pantheon of of, of uh, mythological creatures. And so, and I know people will say, well, that means it's just it's just myth, it's just folklore. But but the fact that there is folklore on this. That, that's one leg of that stool. Then you have uh, the archaeology. Each one of these regions has its own set of archaeological sites, some of them very well known, that were occupied by Homo erectus and or Neanderthals. So, and then along with that, um, that leg, you also have the fossil record. So you actually have these fossils of these, these hominids that are found in the same exact regions where these creatures are being uh, observed. And then lastly, you have the fourth leg is you've got this huge body of reports of, of these encounters. And, and I'll read a few here in a little bit, but, but and we're talking highly detailed, uh, this isn't like a fleeting Sasquatch encounter where you hear something crunch behind you, you turn and, and for two or three seconds, you see this large hairy ape walking through the woods, you know, away from you. We're talking about multiple people, you know, spending hours watching these things does that tell us that they are not as furtive as the wood ape? I would definitely say that's the case, um, which, is, which is strange. But the way I see it is that you've, you have the phenomenon, and so what is that? What, what, what's the source of this phenomenon? Well, you, You've got these four different legs of evidence, if you will, that support this
2: phenomenon. But it is within the purview of science to explain the natural world, the physical world, right? science is responsible science in quotation marks is responsible for the explication of the physical world what comprises the physical world uh everything that is in the physical world and at the very basis of the scientific method is observation right so you so you've just given us you've just given us uh this information about at least hundreds of eyewitness observations that span Centuries that span disparate geographic locations, and so it seems to me it would be it would be a, res- a very responsible thing to do for for someone to at least take this basically serious and look into this and 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 do what you're what you're asking what you're what you're proposing needs to be done, and that is to investigate, examine this, and and take it to its logical conclusion. Absolutely. So, I mean, just imagine if the very notion that
0: there is a relic population of Neanderthals or Homo erectus still alive and still roaming the, you know, the mountains of, of, of Eurasia. Earth shattering. It, 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 exactly. It's, ex- and it's, it's mind boggling to me that, and I think, I think again, like I mentioned before, it, it's, it's largely just happenstance that this thing just sort of gets lumped into the, the sort of the umbrella of, you know, uh, hairy wild people or wild men. and, it gets tossed around, you know, with with the Bigfoot and Yeti and and um, with those terms, everyone just sort of assumes it's just a, another version of that, and it really isn't.
2: So, what that would mean just for the adding to the scientific catalog is is mind blowing. But then again, but then you also have to add to that what that would mean for us as a species, Homo sapiens sapiens, if some sort of discovery were to be made regarding this almighty. I think that would just it, it, like I said it would be earth-shattering for even us what we would learn about ourselves and our connection to the rest of the of the world and uh, other hominoid species it just it's just mind-blowing you know exactly but what I'd like to do if I may is kind of take this by region. They stand alone
0: uh, as far as, the, like I said, the body of, of. You've got the folklore, you've got the reported sightings, you've got the archaeology, and you've got the fossil record. But um, it's. I think it's important to sort of isolate each region and, and sort of take a, a, a look at each one separately. Particularly with the Almasti, um, that's largely in the Caucasus, which is a mountain chain. Basically, it, it, it straddles the entire isthmus of, again, just east of the Black Sea. It separates the Black Sea um, from the Caspian Sea. And it includes uh, the countries of, of Georgia, Azerbaijan, uh, Dagestan, Chechnya, uh, Carbadino, Balkaria. That seems to be the one region where most of the al uh, sightings come from, and then Armenia. And so you've got this narrow mountain chain uh, that goes basically from the northwest to the southeast, that isthmus. And of course, we know now it's it's mostly, we're talking decades of civil war, um, Soviet domination. And, and um, so it's a, it's a war-torn region. Um, so it's not, it's not really open to Westerners, at least to a large degree today. And then, uh, culturally it's, 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 it's largely occupied by, by herders. And these, like I said, these are r- kind of rural mountain people. They raise, um, goats, sheep, uh, horses, um, donkeys. And those are the people that are seeing these things. Um, but also, uh, and I find this interesting, but the Russians, of course, they would send a lot of scientists in the region to do um, geological studies, hydrological studies, and there are very credible eyewitness accounts from Russian scientists um, that were there to study something completely different, and they happened to see an Almasty and of course, they talked amongst uh, amongst themselves, you know, and, and and would report these things. And so, the Russians in 1958 founded this um, this Snowman Commission, is what they called it, and they sent a, a small team of, of scientists to investigate um, the phenomenon. And uh, one of the, the the leaders was this uh, Marie Jean Kaufman, and she was a really interesting person. She uh, she actually led a, a battalion of, of uh, mountain troops uh, in the war for the Caucasus. She was afterwards. She was she was put in a, a Soviet gulag. But but she spent over fifty years um, documenting these things. And but she was very disappointed in how the the Snowman Commission um, turned out. They did they did cast some tracks. They took some some hair samples. Um, Whatever happened to those things, nobody knows. They didn't have any primatologists, anthropologists, archaeologists, anything of that nature on, on the the commission team. And it was, she felt it was a, a, a huge disappointment, but it's still interesting that, that, uh, that they at least put something together. They thought that there was enough to, to look into. And to a small degree, the same thing happened in Mongolia um, with a different group of, of researchers. But there's kind of an interesting angle uh, to this region because of, of religion. Mostly it's it's witnessed by men. And I've seen, there's a, there's actually a report from 2017 by a couple of folklorists who wrote a of a scathing paper on the subject and, and chalked this whole phenomenon up to just simple folklore uh, and, and language and, and terminology, which they ignored uh, a good portion of what's out there. But that could easily be described or explained as, as religious. This is, these are largely uh, Muslim, uh, small Muslim uh, villages. In this one, uh, this one paper, they said, "Well, how come no women see these things? Women do see them, but not not to the same degree as men. The men are the ones that are out working the fields, pushing the, the cattle, and and herding uh, the livestock, cutting wood. So that these these the women are not allowed to go out." by themselves um, they're expected to, to stay back in, in the village and, and tend to the home. And what's the religious
2: connection? You said there was a religious connection. Well, these are all Muslim areas. Uh, all, all the reports come from Muslims in the Caucasus. Okay. In the Caucasus. All right. Uh-huh. All
0: these, these villages are all dominated by, by Islam and have and have for, for a long time. And so that kind of explains to me. Um, but interestingly enough in uh, Mongolia, they're largely tibetan buddhist now they still practice shamanism um, a small minority still still practice shamanism but and and they have they have sort of their own take on on these they're accepted to be part and parcel of of their region uh, along like with what like a good example would be the yeti of course um, everybody sort of knows there's that that sort of kindred relationship between tibetan buddhist monks and the Yeti. Well, it's it's the same in 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 Mongolia, but in the Caucasus, however, it's not. It's it's not treated as as part of of the religion and folklore by the by the Muslims there.
1: Well, it's an interesting point to make because very often cultures see many components, if not all components of the natural world through a religious lens. And so oftentimes investigators or contenders with those phenomena get hung up on that element of it. And there's a great quote in uh, The Asian Wildman by Dr. Jean-Paul Debonat that, you know, I'll read a truncated version, but I think it's so apropos for this. And he says, religions play an important role. They constitute a factor that cannot be ignored. It becomes very important to understand the cultural history of the regions visited, which requires patience and subtlety. The dividing line between physical reality and metaphorical speech is often vague, making it difficult to know when natives speak of the world of spirits and that of near men, strangely material as well as mortal. Depending on the attitude of the investigator, the religious dimension will appear either as an obstacle, a veil over the phenomenon under study, or as a component which must be included to understand it. In that case, religious influences open the door to the beginning of understanding and help lift the veil obscuring physical reality. And so, it sounds like, to some degree, that's what you're seeing here with the inclusion of the the quote unquote wild man in certain religious systems, uh, the exclusion of it in others. You know, seeing it as uh, totemic in some regards, seeing it as demonic or evil, and so. Uh, it, that's just an important factor to understand that this is part and parcel of the perception of the natural world. And, and too many cynics and skeptics want to write the whole thing off as solely the product of folklore or religion because there are religious elements associated with it or let's say supernatural or metaphysical elements associated with it.
0: Exactly. And it, it, to me, it's, it just depends on what lens that you decide. And I, I try to approach this with to look at all these facets. They all play a role. It's not one singular thing or another. The fact that it, it is sort of included in their, in their uh, religious belief, that to me is, is also telling. It's not under its own weight. In other words, it's like, well, this is a religious thing, and so that's it. It's, it's, it but it is, it's included in the secular and in the religious. And to me, that just that bolsters um, the argument for something real and tangible. But I'd like to read a – and I mean there are hundreds, hundreds of these accounts – but some of them really stick out, and I think they're worthy um, worthy of, of mention because this is not your stereotypical Sasquatch encounter. This is a, an almosty story told by uh, Kumchev Talib, who was a 67 year old Karbidarian. Uh, he was one of the most respected elders of their village, and this is in the Republic of Carbadino, Bulgaria. And again, this was, this was uh, from an interview by um, Dr. Kaufman. So, this is what Talib had to say. He said it was probably 1930 uh, or 1931 or even 1932 in June or at the end of May when our cattle left for alpine pastures of El Bruz. I was chief of the group and we had left to inspect the herds with the veterinarian. Well, rain had surprised one of my shepherds, uh, Zagariv Shagir very high up on the slopes, and he had gone to take refuge under a rocky overhang. There were 3 Almastis sitting under it. Shagir was a little frightened, but as the rain was then falling much harder, he decided to stay there anyway, except staying at a distance from them. They looked at one another. Then the rain stopped and Shagir came down to the farm. He did not say anything to anyone. Very early in the morning, I was awakened by cries, a tremendous noise, and I saw that the shepherds were running to assemble their herds and were taking the cattle down the valley. Why are they leaving? I asked. There are Almastis under the rock up there. At that moment, Shagir declared, it's true. There are three Almastis sitting up there. I saw them yesterday evening. I was then really angry, and I said to Shagir, you're an idiot. You were frightened by a bush. No, said Shagir. I saw them. Well, why didn't you tell anyone? Shagir replied, because the old people have warned. When you see an Almasti for the first time, if you tell anyone about it, you'll get a bad headache. Well, for me, it was the first time I'd seen one. I continued not to, b- to believe all of this. And then they said to me, okay, go ahead, go see for yourself. There were about 10 or 15 of us making a half, we made a half circle around that rock. We stayed there until dinner time. Some went away and others came up. Three almastis were se- seated under the overhang, two of medium size and the other bigger. The one which was the biggest was in the middle. They were sitting on rocks facing us, hunched over with their heads down. From time to time, they'd raise their heads uh, slightly and looked at us from under their brows. Their heads were very ugly, not nice at all. They resemble a human face a little, but the nose is shorter and flattened. The eyes are slanted and reddish. The cheeks are very prominent, like those of a Mongol or a Korean, but more so. The lips are thin. The lower jaw is receding, as though cut on a bias. The hair is long, like that of a woman, and tangled. The entire body is covered with shaggy hair, resembling that of a buffalo. In some places... This is long, like in the torso or chest, and in other places it's shorter, on the arms or legs. The big one has a chest of a man. The others had the breasts of a woman, but extremely long and covered with hair. The hair was very dirty, and the stink was so strong that we could not stand it. The odor resembled that of wild flax when it grows thickly. Once, the one seated on the right mumbled something. I did not see their hands clearly as they were held between their legs. The legs are rather short and bowed. The foot is like that of a man, but more spread out. All were wearing, wrapped around their waists, an old piece of a shepherd's cape. The young shepherd proposed to throw a lasso around one of them and bring it into the village. But all the others cried out that that is forbidden, that they must not be harmed, and that they must not be disturbed. I watched them from a distance of about three to four meters, and I even approached to within one meter. Did I touch them? I should say not. If you touch them as all as my witness, you could no longer eat with your hands afterward. They are so dirty and filthy, stinking and repulsive. I remained about two hours. When I left, other shepherds were arriving. I've also heard from my father recount that they suckle on cows. (laughs) So, and like I said, that's one of hundreds of accounts uh, spanning decades by these these local uh, shepherds. And this guy was, you know, he was a respected elder, of that village, and and so you have this account, which again it stands out, and most of these do. They the these things are being observed for not just for a fleeting few seconds, but for sometimes hours and multiple witnesses, and they're they're observed oftentimes in groups or, or a small family unit, uh, or a mother with her children, um, and it's just it's just. I mean I, I could just go
2: on and on and, and and it's just report after report. And these are very, very detailed. Yeah, that's what struck me was the amount of detail. Do you know when was this account first recorded? This would have been in the in the late nineteen fifties or
0: early sixties. And this is a you know, an old guy. So um, it, it seems as though a lot of what we can find as far as reports and accounts Comes from early 19, uh, early twentieth century and perhaps late nineteenth century. Um, there's a lot of reference to the time of Nicholas, which is referring to the of course, you know, uh, the czar. And so you have a lot of these. Um, uh, there's even one account of, of a fa- uh, uh, one of the tribal elders has said that not only my father but my father's father used to feed these things and would interact pretty regularly with with the Almasti. And so you have like. So it's it's sort of passed down generationally. Everyone knows about these things. They're just sort of common knowledge, which of course takes on you know this sort of air of, of myth. But but then when people see them, they're like, oh my gosh, they actually exist. You know, uh, this is a story told by Akaminov Kuzer Beckenlok, <laughs> who was a fifty a fifty five year old Karbadian uh, who's a farmer. And, it's, and this is what he told her. He said, a month ago on the 10th of August, which was 1964, about three kilometers from the village, I was uh, tending to a field of sunflowers where there remained some open places where seeds had not been sown. Suddenly I heard a strong noise as if some, someone were blowing noisily like a dog when a fly gets into his nose. When the sound occurred a third time, I put down my scythe and went to look. Suddenly, two arms, like human ones, but long, black, and hairy, extended out of the foliage in my direction. I ran immediately to my cart and climbed up on it. It had been unhitched about ten meters away. Standing on the cart, I saw a silhouette resembling a human one, which was bent over and was pushing into the sunflowers. I only saw clearly the back, which was covered with long, reddish hair, like that of a buffalo, and the long hair of, of the head. I did not see its face. When the Almasti had left, I recognized it at once because I formerly have seen others. I came down from my cart and returned to my scythe. At that moment, I heard a squealing at the same place. I advanced carefully and pushed the stalks apart. On the packed down grass, as in a nest, were lying two newborns. It was clear that she had just given birth. They were exactly like human babies, except they were much smaller, and they must have weighed around two kilos, not more. Apart from that, you would not have been able to distinguish them from our little ones. They had little rosy skin, like human infants, exactly the same head and same arms and legs. They were not hairy. No, I stress this. They were not hairy. They looked like newborn humans or newborn rats, bare and with rosy skin. They were waving their little arms and legs, just like our newborns, and squalling. I got away from there in a hurry. I quickly hitched up my donkey and returned to the village. Two or three days later, I came back, but there was no one around. Kaufman asked, why did you not tell anyone about this? What do you mean, not tell anyone? I told my wife and my neighbors about it. I mean, why did you not report it? But report it to who? For what reason? Well, to the authorities or to the police, to the uh, Solsovyet Soviet the idea of reporting such foolishness to the authorities and Almasti giving birth aroused great hilarity from the small group present in this interview. But you didn't know that this was of interest, that scientists are studying the Almasti? Who knew that was important? Never in my life had I heard it said that it could be of interest to anyone. I and mean, that's an interesting account. Uh, it's incredible that it's, he... <laughs> Obviously, witnessed the birth of an almost two uh, twins. Apparently, but also it's telling that they just they don't have any sort of care of the outside world. This is just such a common phenomenon in their culture, um, in their region that they just don't see that it's of any interest, of any significance.
2: Yeah, he, he obviously he's, he, there's no connection there. He, there's a disconnect there. Um, you know, the interviewer is is wondering why he didn't report it and and he's saying well report it because of what why why would i report that it's a, you know it's it's a common thing <laughs> within our within uh, our world you know
1: You know what it reminds me of is like in in a conversation about occupying different value structures and what has value to you and the value that you perceive in things. Is you remember Paul had mentioned in that previous episode that one of the frustrations you could speak to this, Paul, but you had talked about how there are people who are obviously seeking any sort of stone artifacts or implements in North America, you know, arrowheads, let's say, to establish the presence of peoples in those places. And so then you have these artifact hunters who are really only looking for like aesthetic qualities. And so they'll find arrowheads that maybe have a broken tip or, you know, they're imperfect. And so they never report it to anyone because the only value they see in it is, well, how complete is the arrowhead, et cetera. And so, You know, it's this analogous situation where they're stumbling across information that is of great value to other people, but they don't see that value in it because it's not what they're looking for. And so I can imagine that people who occupy these different value structures, you know, who are just trying to survive, herdsmen, et cetera, don't necessarily see the need to uh, drop everything and make the cross-country trek to go into some metropolis where capital S science is located and uh, report (laughs) these things, you know
0: and again, I could go on for hours reading similar accounts like these uh, from the caucuses. Um, she did a great job of, of collating these interviews. And she, you know, obviously asked very um, detailed questions, but this goes back much, much further uh, in time. There is an account uh, from the, from the early 1400s uh, from a, a person. He was a, a Bavarian nobleman named Hans uh, Schlittberger Who was actually taken prisoner by the Turks, and he was sent to uh, Tamerlane, um, and he escaped and was trying to make his way back to Germany, and he actually wrote about his travels, and you can actually, I I I haven't seen it, but they're they're housed in uh, somewhere in Munich, but um, this is an extract taken from his journal. And this would this would be east. This would be in the Tian Shan range, which the mountains uh, when they when they extend out from the Pamirs in the Hindu Kush region, there's a small sliver of, of northwestern China, the Tian Shan range, and that they uh, farther east moved uh, turn into the Altai range. But this this account comes from the Tian Shans, and this is what this is what uh, Schlittberger had to say. Shatkara joined. Agide on his expedition to Siberia, which it took them two months to reach. In that country, there's a range of mountains called the Arbus, which is 32 days journey long. The inhabitants say that beyond the mountains is the beginning of a wasteland, which lies to the edge of the, no- of the earth. I'm assuming he's talking about Siberia. Um, no one can survive there because the desert is populated by so many snakes and tigers. In the mountains themselves live wild people who have nothing in common with other human beings. A pelt covers the entire body of these creatures. Only the hands and face are free of hair. They run around in the hills like animals and eat foliage and grass and whatever else they can find. The lord of the territory made Agidi a present of a couple of the forest people, a man and a woman. They had been caught in the wilderness together with three untamed horses the size of asses and all sorts of other animals which are not found in German lands and which I cannot therefore put a name to. What's interesting about this account is it's from the 1400s. It's from it's from a German, and not only that, but he actually saw these creatures. And then, secondly, he's referring to the the, the horses the size of asses. That's the Shavalsky horse, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but it's it's a it's a small um, endangered horse um, that was discovered by this Nikolai Shavalsky. Um, who was a, a naturalist and uh, of which the horse is named for. And what's interesting about that is that Chowalski himself saw an Alma. Uh, he saw an almas in Mongolia, uh, in Mongolia in 1871. So, you know, this is, again, this is sort of, he's describing things that have later been discovered by science. But of course we ignored the, <laughs> we ignored the almas in this case. So, but that's kind of a, I think that's an interesting, uh, an account, but one of the more, um, Widely known reports about in re, regards to the Almazri Almasti is uh, from Topilsky. Um, there was a uh, this is a sort of an, uh, an infamous account, and this is in the uh, in the Pamirs. It's worthy uh, to mention here. Uh, this was in 1925. Uh, it was he was a major general. His name was uh, Mikhail um, Stipnanovich Topilsky. He was a commissar of a mounted regiment, and they were they were actually pursuing some uh, Russians. And this is what he had to say. So continuing our chase, we caught up with what was left of the exhausted gang who had stopped for a rest at a place where the glacier was split apart by a stone cliff. The upper tongue of the glacier hung from the cliff in which there was a crevice or a cave. We surrounded the gang and took up a position above where they were resting. A machine gun was placed in position. When we threw the first grenade, a Russian officer ran out onto the glacier and started shouting that the, that the shooting would make the ice cave uh, cave in and that everybody would be buried. When we demanded that they surrender, he asked for time to talk it over with his other bandits and went back into the cave. Soon after, we heard an ominous hissing as the ice began to move. At almost the same moment, we heard shots, and not knowing what they meant, decided that it was the beginning of an assault. Pieces of snow and ice started falling down from the cliff, gradually burying the entrance to the cave. When it was nearly buried, three men managed to escape, and the rest, we learned later that there were five, were buried under the debris. Our shots killed two of the bandits and seriously wounded a third. When we reached him, he showed us the spot where the body of a Russian officer was buried, and we dug it out. The wounded man turned out to be an Uzbek tea house owner from Samarkand. We questioned him, and he gave us the following information. While the bandits were discussing our order to surrender, some hairy man-like creatures, howling inarticulately, appeared in the cave through a crevice, which possibly led upwards from the cave. There were several of them, and they had sticks in their hands. The bandits tried to shoot their way through. One of the bandits was killed by the creatures with sticks. Our narrator received a blow from the stick on his shoulder and rushed to the cave entrance with one of the monsters hard on his heels. It ran out of the cave after him, but he shot it, and it was buried under the snow. To check up on this strange story, we made him show us the exact spot and cleared the snow away. We recovered the body, all right. It had three bullet wounds. Not far off, we found a stick made of very hard wood, though it cannot be stated for certain that it belonged to the creature. At first glance, I thought the body was that of an ape. It was covered with hair all over. But I know there were no apes in the Pamir's. Also, the body itself looked very much like that of a man. We tried pulling the hair to see if it was just hide used for disguise, but found that it was the creature's own natural hair. We turned the body over several times on its back and its front, and we measured it. Our doctor, who was killed later the same year, made a long and thorough inspection of the body, and it was clear that it was not a human being. The, the body belonged to a male creature. Uh, five foot five to five foot seven inches tall, elderly or even old, judging by the grayish color of the hair in several places. The chest was covered with brownish hair, and the belly with grayish hair. The hair was longer but sparser on the chest and close cropped and thick on the belly. In general, the hair was very thick, without any underfur. There was the least amount of hair on its buttocks, from which the fact our doctor deduced that the creature sat like a human being. There was most most hair on the hips. The knees were completely bare of hair and had callous growths on them. The whole foot, including the sole, was quite hairless and was covered by hard brown skin. The hair got thinner near the hand, and the palms had none but all only callous skin. The color of the face was dark, and the creature had neither beard nor mustache. The temples were bald, and the back of the head was covered by thick, matted hair. The dead creature lay with its eyes open and its teeth bared. The eyes were dark, and the teeth were large and even shaped like human teeth. The forehead was slanting and the eyebrows were very powerful. The protruding jaw bones made the face resemble the Mongol top type of face. The nose was flat with a deeply sunk bri- uh, bridge. The eyes were hairless. I'm sorry. The ears were hairless and looked a little more pointed uh, than a human beings with longer lobes. The lower jaw was very massive. The creature had a very powerful chest and well-developed muscles. We didn't find any important anatomical difference between it and man. The genitalia were like a man's. The arms were of normal length. The hands were slightly wider and the feet much wider and shorter than man's. So what ended up happening was they left the body. They didn't take it with them. I mean, they were engaged in this military uh, incursion. And so this was sort of a, a side show that sort of came about from that. Um, what's interesting is that, um, Topilski himself, um, he actually told this story to a Leningrad hydrologist, uh, a guy named A.G. Pranin, who was in the area. Pranin actually had not one, but two sightings in the same area of an Almasdi. <laughs> so, you know, this isn't just some sort of folklorish tale by a, a mythological, uh, general, you know, who was engaged in, in a fight with some white Russians. I mean, he... And he told it to a Russian scientist who then himself had his own encounters. And so that's the, and as the story goes, I mean, this is this this whole phenomenon is is chock full of these kinds of, of stories. Yeah, what I find so fascinating about that particular story is, you know, the, the
1: nature of the reporting party, because they're not embedded or nested within that cultural group that includes the almost the almost and sort of a cultural motif or, you know, a folkloric motif. And the reason I think that's important is because the devil's advocate position, which would be a very strong position and a valid set of criticisms, would be that what well, we do know that humans coexisted in these regions with other hominins You know, Neanderthalensis, uh, Denisovans, etc. And so you could easily make the case that the folklore represents conserved memory told via story passed down via generation to generation of the times in our past when language bearing anatomically and behaviorally modern humans we're sharing the landscape and seeing these things. And so and again, I, I, I would look at something like that as, well, that's a fair criticism is that those encounters were encoded into stories that were passed down via generations. And so that's how they survive. But then you can't necessarily apply that to, uh, you know, someone of the the nature that you just described, who's claiming to see one in contemporary times in the modern era who didn't come from that sort of cultural background and who's describing anatomy and physiology from a firsthand perspective being directly, you know, directly in contact with the specimen after
0: it was killed. Right. I mean, that's, that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly right. It's, it's, and that's, a, I think that's a solid argument against the folklore only argument. I kind of like to, to move on east to Mongolia, um, to the Altai Mountains. It's a, a, a very rugged mountain chain that sort of starts in the northwestern part of the country. And and sort of sweeps um, southeasterly. Uh, it's bordered to the north by Siberia uh, or the Transbaikal region, and then to the south by the Gobi Desert. Now, historically, there were there were sightings of Almas in the Gobi or in the, the, the foothills surrounding the Gobi, uh, but today, at least in in modern times, it's the reports largely come from the north, sort of a northwestern pocket. Uh, the Altais just across the border from siberia there 's limited passes there 's not a there 's not a lot of hydrology in other words they're not they 're not cut by you know multiple rivers they're uh, largely surrounded by steppes and tundra uh so it's it 's fairly treeless there's also several large freshwater lakes it 's also a very very harsh climate
2: so this species then based on what you just said and and some of your in, in the accounts we've heard, this species is, is not uh, does not shy away from a steppe or a plains environment then uh, which 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 also runs counter to reports of 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 the sasquatch, which typically typically uh, occur in uh, heavily wooded wilderness areas um, with high amounts of rainfall and uh, bodies of water. This particular thing, whatever it is, does it seem to favor any particular geographic uh, environment? Well, it, it favors these mountains because the, the
0: mountains of uh, the Altai, you know, again, are very similar topographically and environmentally. They're very similar to the Pamirs, to the Tian Shan's, and and so they're they're similar environments essentially. Something that, that's worthy of note, I think, about particularly Mongolia in general, it has probably one of the lowest population densities on the planet Earth. It actually it has it has less people than the state of Oklahoma and yet it's the size of of Texas, essentially. So you know, there are Westerners that go there. There's there's a lot of ecotourism there. There's even a small percentage of of big game hunters, uh, Western, wealthy big game hunters, uh trophy Argali sheep are sort of a prized um animal. Um, but it's uh again, it's 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 really remote, really hard to get to. And, of course, the locals are the ones that are seeing these things. I think kind of interestingly enough, all of these regions also share another sort of a shy, elusive, uh, rarely seen creature, and that's the snow leopard. So this is definitely snow leopard country as well. Um, but they also have, uh, they've got reindeer. You know, Ibex is one of, like I mentioned before, is, is very prolific. Uh, wild boar, um, gazelles. And then wolves and even, even brown bears. So it sort of runs the gamut of, 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 of other wildlife. Interestingly enough, I think archaeologically speaking, you mentioned uh, woolly rhinos and woolly mammoth, but there also were ostriches in this region, <laughs> which is, I think, is pretty bizarre. But like the Russian case for the Caucasus, they mounted an expedition that the government of Mongolia formally uh, formed a commission. And it started in 1959, uh, led by a guy named um, Domden. He was a uh, Mongolian scientist and translator. He translated a lot of uh, a lot of the old textbooks, religious textbooks and, and his, historical accounts of Mongolian history um and then he he sort of he sort of collated a lot of these things and so he was sort of looked upon as sort of the the national scientist of Mongolia. But the, he did four separate expeditions. Um the last one which was uh, in 1965. The very first one was spawned by reports of a corpse uh, where one of these yak herders had had stumbled upon uh, an almost corpse and had described it in detail. Uh, So they went looking for it um, and then they couldn't find it. The witness was was sort of frustrated by this, that they'd searched for days um, for the area, but they couldn't find this corpse. And then in his last expedition, which was nine years after the first one, um, they actually found they turned up a skull and. Kind of similar to to the Russian Snowman Commission, what happened to that skull is just sort of obscured by time and, and history. But um, but there's photographs. He published uh, a manuscript in Mongolian, and this is this is sort of interesting. But his his sort of lifelong dream was he wanted his his manuscript to be translated into Russian, and to him that would be sort of the sort of the pinnacle of his his academic career to be to be. Uh, uh, rewarded by by having his book <laughs> published into Russian, but uh, the photographs of the skull uh, somehow it ended up in Poland. I believe it was a physical anthropologist um, that examined it, but it, it very clearly was was a, a female uh, Homo sapiens skull. So the the belief is that in that nine years um, time frame, if if the, the carcass. Ever existed at all? Um, it was somehow either replaced by a, hum- a modern human, or perhaps it wasn't even in the in the right area. But so you have these sort of interesting little side mysteries that ultimately turn out to be nothing, um, unfortunately. Um, but there's also a report of a, of a full skin of an almas uh, in the northeastern part of Mongolia. There's a uh, a, a group of monasteries. Seven, I think, to be exact, that were when the the, the Bolsheviks took over Mongolia. When when they became uh, a communist country, they burned most of the monasteries down, uh, save for two, I believe. Uh, and then once. Once communism collapsed in the early 90s, um, they started rebuilding these monasteries. But for a couple hundred years, there were these reports of this skin that they had tacked to the ceiling of one of the monasteries. And it was a full almas skin, complete with the face and everything. And of course, they'd take it down for for ritual ceremonies from time to time. And and nobody knows what uh, the whereabouts of, of that skin today. Um, Adam Davies told me that Um, He asked one of the llamas there at that monastery that they said they knew of the skin, but they had no idea what had happened to it, but it just sort of disappeared.
1: It seems like from what you're describing that there was this advent of serious inquiry into these particular surviving hominins, then it just all sort of dies off in like the mid 20th century there. and. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons for that. Like you described, the terrain is inhospitable, and it's such a large area that these things are distributed across. And then I'm sure there's geopolitical reasons and economic reasons that these were not pursued further scientifically. But when do you see it as being like sort of the, the death of, of the inquiry into this? Because
0: clearly no one's looked into this for a very long time. Probably the, the mid to late 60s. Um, there's, there's some, some more accounts in the early seventies. Um, and again, it just, I don't think, I think people just quit looking. Um, but the, from what I've been able to assemble there, there doesn't seem to be any lacking of, of sightings today. You know, there's still, there's still reports coming out of this, this Northwest
2: corner of Mongolia. That was, that's exactly what I was going to ask you next is do we have any 21st century reports?
0: Uh, There was, there was a Mountaineer, I I believe he was Russian in uh, 2003 who found a a foot and I think he took the foot. It it turned out to be a bear, but so I don't really, I don't really would, would count that as, as something in the 21st century. But if there is, it's just, you just don't hear about it. And who, who's going to be, who's going to be the person collating these reports? Who's, who are they going to report it to?
2: Well, it sounds like for your book that that would be um, a worthy trip for you to
0: take. Oh, I already have. It's already, it's on the agenda. Um, But one thing I would like to talk about is the archaeology. And and some, of course, would say this is a huge stretch, but but you have, each of these regions have very, very significant archaeological sites, and most of which also have uh, fossils uh, of either Homo erectus or Heidelbergensis or, um, Neanderthals. Um, so getting back to the, to the Pamirs, uh, in the Caucasus region, you've got, uh, probably the most famous would be, um, Shanidar cave, which is in the, the Kurdish area of, of Iraq. And that's where the, the, the Neanderthal burial, uh, that most people have heard about with the, the flower pollens, um, That's where the whole uh, initial notion of that, you know, Neanderthals bury their dead and they believe in an afterlife, right? Because they decorated this grave with flowers. It was actually a child burial. Um, But also, and I think more, perhaps more significantly, is the Dmanisi site, which is literally in the heart of Almasti country. And for those that don't know what uh, Dmanisi is, that is a very, very prominent, um, very well-studied Homo erectus site. Uh, maybe there's some that say it could be Homo habilis, but um, it, there, there are five uh, specimens there, five full skeletal specimens. I believe they're full specimens. I know that there's at least five skulls, um, but with postcranial remains as well, but um, all of which occupied the same area. There's even one of them is, is it elderly, like it has no teeth. Um, all the teeth fell out and, and the the jaw has ossified over the 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 empty cavity. So this this is clearly an uh, a, an elderly uh, individual that was probably taken care of by the rest of his his group, um, and they all have interesting variations um, morphologically, but essentially they're Homo erectus. Okay, and so you've got this you've got this archaeological site that's in the same exact region. I mean, very very same exact region where you have a predominance of almost sightings. Uh, into modern times. And so uh, to me, that's interesting. Uh, but then when you, when you move on into Siberia and the Baikal region, just north of Mongolia, you've got several prominent archaeological sites there. Uh, the most important would be the, the cave at Denisova. And so that's also a possible contender for what this thing is or could be. And that's the Denisovans. And for those that don't know about the um, Denisovans, so you have this cave in Siberia, it's named after, it was named after a, a, a hermit that lived there named Dennis, which um, is kind of funny. But that's a really interesting archaeological site in that it has anatomically modern humans, Neanderthals, and this other uh, hominid named Denisovan. That was, they all lived in the same cave. Um, in fact, one of the remains that was found there, genetically, they were able to prove that it was actually the offspring of a Denisovan and a Neanderthal. So they were they were interbreeding and and basically, you know, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria kind of thing. So, and the earliest um, stratum of, of the cave at Denisova is about 50,000 years ago. Uh, you have other sites in that area. Uh, there's a cave at uh, Kaminka, there's uh, Okladnikov Cave, uh, and then Karabom, which is, um, these are all uh, prominent Neanderthal sites um, in that region. Uh, of course, you find the, the stone toolkits of Neanderthals and to some degree, Homo erectus, you've got a hand axes, you've got uh, Mousterian uh, spear points. And then you also have cores and scrapers. You've got bone tools, to, uh, tools made of antler, uh, awls and, and bone needles particularly. And then you also, this is also something that, that, that becomes problematic uh, for assigning Neanderthals to this, uh, this phenomenon. And that's, you've got these cultural items. And um, archaeologists call this a modern cultural pa- package, and um, that includes uh, ostrich, egg, shell beads, bone beads, uh, pendants that are made out of te- uh, teeth. Uh, some of these are stained in red ochre, you've got bracelets, you've got uh, even got a couple of uh, barehead effigies that are made out of mammoth bone. so um, and, and then uh, particularly at the cave, uh, believe it's, uh, Kaminka, there's a bird bone flute there. Um, so obviously these are, these are signs of, of what we think of as, as modern culture, modern meaning, um, Homo sapiens sapiens. And so
2: we don't really see any of those elements, um, observed in the Almasti. Well, okay. So, okay. Well then I would have to look elsewhere other than the uh, Homo Neanderthalensis, right? This is not empirical, of course, but there. I
0: have seen some theorize that maybe uh, sort of the cultural items may have been uh, relegated only to either a shaman or maybe a, a religious leader within the group. Um, the same might be said for for stone tools. Um, it's an interesting line of thought. I, I just don't know if I can get there, but it's kind of the assumption that, you know, with, with paleo Indians in North America, were they all hunters? I mean, how do we even know that? We don't, we don't know. Um, was it just the men? Um, there's,
2: there's some studies out that, that seemed to indicate that it wasn't just men that, that hunted but but there do seem to be some characteristics though that we can safely ascribe to to all particular groups of homo sapiens sapiens i mean you, you know there there are a few things that we can that we can say that well without doubt will always you can always attribute to humans it doesn't matter where you find them they're, they're they're going to have they're going to use tools they're going to to wear at least maybe even just the most minimal amount of clothing they're going to have adornments they're going to have some sort of religion or or rituals it, it just seems to me that you know you know ascribing these things to one particular individual uh, i don't know that seems to be a bit of a stretch for me it's a stretch it, and it's it's
0: problematic and, and and it's something that I haven't been able to to reconcile i'm sure um, i'm I'm sure that sort of the 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 pioneers of this research, um, the Dr. Kaufman's of the world probably struggled with this as well. It's like, we don't know, we can't answer that. We don't know. I mean, it doesn't make any sense that, um, if, if, if one were to, to assume that, that within a, a, a band of, of Neanderthals or even Homo erectus, if they sort of had their, um, Less skilled individuals or people that were sort of relegated to a lower uh, strata of their of their social structure, um, you wouldn't think those would be the ones that would survive into the twenty first century. <laughs> I mean, without clothing, and why would they? Why would
2: they have a group of their people that don't wear clothing? That doesn't make any sense either. So, and we don't have any. I mean, there's no, there's no cases at least that come to my mind. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't have any cases of regression among uh, Homo sapiens sapiens where where we've had uh, development, and then we've had a regression. You know where they've become sort of undeveloped. Well, and a case a case in point is is the the Shulean hand
0: axe, and that was sort of the the staple tool of Homo erectus for over a million
2: years. So why would you just suddenly abandon that? Right, um, you become dependent on that for sure uh, if it's that widespread over that period of time. Uh, so okay, so then. Where do we go with that? where what is another possibility, Paul, another vi- so it, 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 this, this species if it is if it's not some sort of novel species that's never been detected, never in the fossil record is not represented in the fossil record for which we have no account, then what else could it be that would be older than Homo erectus uh, as a possibility? again that's that's where you run into trouble because
0: the, you know the australopithecines there there's no remains uh, or fossils of, of australopithecines or paranthropines um outside of africa and um you know homo erectus was 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 very ubiquitous across asia particularly china and even southeast asia and um but there's there's no fossils of any uh earlier hominin not even in the Levant, so um, you know, which would have been sort of the gateway into you know Eurasia from Africa. So we can't. I, I don't. I think that would be an even greater stretch. And even they had stone tools. So, so again, you know, you, you can't really get around that that issue. What's interesting is that uh, also in Mongolia, there's a couple of there's there's less archaeology there. A lot of that is just because most of the archaeology was done. Uh, you know, by Russians uh, in the early uh, 20th century. Um, and then the Mongols that, that do archaeology, they're largely int- more interested in, in historic times, particularly, you know, surrounding the Khans, you know. And, and so um, they just didn't have much interest in, in any sort of paleoanthropology. But um, there are some interesting sites, and one in particular uh, would be in north-central Mongolia, and it's the Salkheet Um, site where they actually found a a skull cap. And this is kind of interesting, I think, because uh, the actual paper that describes this find, and I believe it was found in in 1996, 93 or 96, but um, the skull cap, they have listed as Homo sapiens sapiens with the caveat that the only reason why is because it it was dated to about 20,000 years. But if you look at the skull cap, it is very, very stereotypical Neanderthal. I mean, it has all the morphology of a Neanderthal skull. And even in some cases, uh, some of the facets are even more um, earlier than that, um, to could be assigned to Homo erectus. And so you've got this this weird skull cap that appears to to have all those traits of the Almas or Almasdi, but it's a 20,000-year-old fossil. So – and of course, you know, the, the paleoanthropologists that discovered it, they, they had a hard time reconciling that as well. So they, they even postulated it could be a fossil from a Denisovan. So, and since we don't have any, any, uh, cranial material from Denisovan, I mean, the, the jury is going to be still be out on that. Um, but that's just kind of an interesting to me. And then also, uh. Most of these sites have the font, fa- all the faunal remains are exactly what you would expect. Um, wild horse, ibex, the argali sheep, um, gazelles, uh, wolf, uh, ostrich, so lots of small game, and then, of course, you know, your woolly mammoths and woolly rhinoceros. So, but there's one other thing that's that's sort of interesting about, about Mongolia is that it's got over 70 recorded uh, petroglyph sites now, and several of those sites contain depictions of what. Might or might not be the almost. Of course, now how do you distinguish that between just you know your sort of you know run-of-the-mill anthropomorphic you know stick figure? Uh, well, that's 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 part of the problem. Given your research into this particular topic and the
1: the plans to write a book, which I know is is in the uh, beginning stages, and you're putting words to paper now. Like, what's the, what are the, what do you see as the next steps for you in this investigation and this
0: inquiry? i 'm going there <laughs> so i don't i don 't know how i can I can even write about the subject with any uh honest effort um, without actually going there to see for myself the the geography the topography the culture you know to meet the people there um, but i have I have a contact in academia that that has um, local contacts and and people that may have still be seeing these things. Um, and also knows um, the archaeology of the region. So I'll, I'll be investigating
2: these things So in person. Well, it sounds like a fantastic project. I'm, I'm excited about this. It's probably going to take you a couple of years to, to get this thing done, but um, it sounds exciting to me.
1: Yeah, one thing we definitely need to arm Paul with is some sort of a field recorder so that he can record updates from the field, and maybe we could weave that into a sequel to
2: this particular podcast episode. Yeah, that would be fantastic.
0: I'd like to close if I could. And, and what's interesting is I, I started thinking about this and I thought, what is the solution to this? What is the next step? We're in the 21st century now. And wouldn't it be terrible and tragic if this thing really did exist, but it's now gone. It's, it's, it's died out or whatever, because it's, you know, just lost to time and, and modern civilization. But so I, and I thought this is kind of an interest and when I, when I came up with these things, I thought, well, you know what, that, same thing could be applied to the wood ape for that matter. But to me, I think what needs to happen, um, the sort of the bare bones solution, or, or at least a, a partial solution to, to, to finding an answer is to get academia engaged. This subject matter, particularly uh, the wood ape as well, it's like, this is sort of, this is still a, a joke. You know, this is just a, an interesting cultural phenomenon now that it sells tacos and car insurance and and, and beef jerky and, and you know, and you go to these areas of the country where there's there's wood ape sightings and you've got pizza joints and bowling alleys, and people use it in all their advertising and 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 it's it's sort of this cultural shtick now and and I get that but the the very people that are still visiting in terms of the almasti and the, the almas the very people the westerners that are actually visiting these regions outside of any you know ecotourism. Our academics, or scientists, they're they're archaeologists, they're they're folklorists, they're uh, geologists, uh, naturalists, biologists. These are people that are actually doing field work in these regions, and so they're scientifically trained. And so these are the people that need to be keeping their eyes and ears open. And instead of just sort of laughing it off as like local legend. They should be raising their
2: eyebrows at this. Personally, I think it's absurd that uh, a, a discipline that is tasked with explaining the physical world would would just pick and choose certain things uh, deemed worthy to investigate simply because one cannot wrap one's mind around it. Because I mean, there's there's so many things in natural history <laughs> that defied reason that now we know to be truth. I mean. We, For Pete's sake, physicists are even now discussing, pondering the possibility of of a multiverse.
1: Well, Paul, I commend you for taking on this project. It is definitely a worthy endeavor, and I certainly hope that our uh, listeners have learned a lot today. I know I certainly have.
2: It's exciting. I'm I'm excited. (laughs) Well, good luck, Paul. Wish you a lot of luck with this, man. Appreciate it.